Okay, all right, I'm gonna move through this pretty fast, okay? So you gotta keep up really quick. I'm actually gonna try to cover part one and part two um, altogether today. Would like to get it completely finished and done because there are so many other things um, to work on. If is up on screen, you're taking notes, so you shouldn't be taking notes on things that are already up here. There's no point in recording what you've already got in front of you, okay? But we're gonna, we're gonna start out with a, a more basic question, which is, how do we know what's on the hearts and minds of any people living at any particular time? And maybe the more central question is, why is it important to ever know what's on the hearts and minds of a people? Maybe even another more basic question would be, is there such a thing as a collective psychology, a collective heart and mind? Like for example, today, if we're looking at the, at the American people today in November of 2008, would we be able to ask questions about whether we have a collective psychology? And if we do, what is that collective psychology? Right now we're experiencing one of the worst economic downturns really since the Great Depression, has the potential to be even worse than the Great Depression. There is a collective fear out there does that lend itself to the idea that we do have a collective psychology? And why does it matter to us to know that? Why do we need skills to know what's on the hearts and minds of people? Another way that you could look at this is that we went into Iraq to bring them freedom, to release them from a tyrant, from a dictator. And while we've been there, we have attempted to win over the hearts and minds of the Iraqi people. But what does that mean? Okay. So we're asking this question now in the context of the time period that we're looking at. So if we're looking at the hearts and minds of the people of the Middle Ages, was their heart and their mind in a religious space? Or was their heart and mind more occupied with the daily trials and tribulations of survival and, and daily living, which is the subject of this symposium that we're looking at? Okay. Again, were their hearts and minds particularly occupied by religion or by more worldly concerns? And uh, digging into that question now in this context will help us to become a little bit better in terms of digging into that question in other contexts where it's really necessary for you to know the answer okay, in any, any particular study that you're doing. Okay? Okay, so again, secular concerns, secular meaning worldly, or clerical concerns, clerical meaning religious. Okay, there's another question that we're working on right now, which is this business of was the life of labor short, brutish and miserable, or pretty okie-dokie? And again, the question that's embedded in the question is why do, we need to be, why do we need to even look at this question? Well, as you go throughout your life, you're gonna be constantly asked to assess the condition of the average person. And in fact, you probably uh, will be one of those average people unless you're one of those Barack Obama types that does something so extraordinary uh, that it sort of makes your, your head spin. But for the most part, and I'm not making any comment about you guys, you're mostly gonna end up being part of just the common people. Would be lovely if you got elevated in some way, but that's where you're gonna end up. So, you might be looking at yourself and thinking, what is my condition as part of the mass of people out there? And hopefully as we go through this process and you go through the details of this thematically, you'll get um, a little bit better at being able to assess that condition, okay? All right, 
So we look at some images of the condition of the common person in the Middle Ages. And these are the kinds of images that might show up if you were, oh, I don't know, doing a DBQ on a test, right? And you'd be able to assess what's going on here. Can I describe what's going on here? And can I infer anything from what's going on here? Okay. By the way, this is a very cool function in Keynote. It's an animation called thumbing through. It's like you're going through a deck of cards and you can add as many images as you want. Okay. Okay, so we're just looking at these images and trying to figure out what the condition of the common man is. Okay, before we go on into the Middle Ages, we have to pause for a moment and just clarify how we ended the chapter on the Romans. The chapter on the Romans ends with Rome becoming Christian. And we need to understand maybe a little bit more about what that means. The last image that I showed you on the uh, keynote on the Romans was of this movie, The Passion of the Christ, and here's Christ carrying the cross to his crucifixion. And we know the general Christian story of Christ um, living for some odd 30 years and then uh, is crucified by the Romans, takes the sins of the world onto his shoulders and is dead, crucified and dead for three days after which he rises to the right hand of the Father and so begins the Christian religion which is the largest religion on the planet today. Quite remarkable that a small cult of really no consequence amongst many cults during the time of the Romans turns out to become the largest religion of the day would mm, perhaps cause one to ask why. Why does Christianity become the choice for people amongst many choices? What is it about Christianity that causes so many people to gravitate to it as a religion? Okay, so just a quick review. There are three, at this point that we're entering into the medieval period, there are three religions that are, are, have already emerged or are emerging. Okay? First of all, there's Judaism, which is the religion of the Jews. There's Christianity, the religion of Christians. And there's Islam, which is the religion, religion of Muslims. Okay? So if there's one thing that you understand about the difference between a Christian and a Jew, I bet if I were to ask that question here, probably very few or none of you could answer that question. The difference between a Christian and a Jew is that the Jews are still waiting for their Messiah to come. Christians believe the Messiah has already come and gone, and that Messiah was Jesus. This is a fundamental difference between Christians and Jews. So what the Jews do as part of their religion is essentially continue to prepare themselves for the Messiah who has not yet arrived. Whereas Christians, knowing that the Messiah has arrived and has already departed and gone to the right hand of the Father and is supposed to come back again to collect the living and the dead and decide who's going to go to heaven and hell, that their fundamental approach to their religion is going to be different because they're not, they're not waiting. The Jews are still waiting. Okay? And then we have this third great religion which emerges up out of the medieval period um, called Islam. And in Islam, Muhammad is a prophet and the prophet receives the word of God. The God is the same God of Judaism and the same God of Christianity. But he receives the word of God and is designated as the last prophet, the final prophet, but is in no way, shape, or form considered the son of God. That is what distinguishes Islam from Christianity. Christianity believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Islam believes Jesus was merely a prophet. He was an important prophet, 
but he wasn't even the last prophet. Muhammad is the last prophet. And it is that word of God as expressed through the Quran that uh, is the, the creed of the religion itself. Okay? But again, to emphasize that all three religions are essentially drawing from the same God. They have different traditions, but we're left with this question at the bottom, which is, if they're all coming from the same God, if they're all essentially acknowledging that these people like Jesus and Muhammad were great prophets, why all the fighting and hatred and pain and suffering between these three religions? Why wouldn't it be more possible for religions that are essentially based on the same God to be more compatible with each other, more tolerant of each other? So we want to sort of pause and take note of this as we move into the medieval period because all three religions, at least by the year 700, all three religions are going to be active players in Europe. And we're, we're going to pay attention to that as we go through. Okay? All right. Like how the transition comes? It's called the doorway in Keynote. Very cool transition. That's why I love Keynote. Okay. Again, before we move into the, to the details of the Middle Ages, we have to pause for a moment and just understand our historical labels. We're talking about the fall of Rome. And I illustrated this the other day when the lights went out. Remember, Maximus said, Rome is the light and the light went out, and we don't know when the lights are going to come back on again. The Dark Ages, referring to the fact that the light of Rome, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, the security of Rome, the law of Rome, the order of Rome, all of that fades away over a couple of hundred years, and we go into the period so-called the Dark Ages. We see the rise of Christianity, which replaces the infrastructure of Rome. We move into the medieval period, which is really kind of marked when we get to Charlemagne, who I'll get to in a second, around 800. So between 500 and 800. And then later, we get the High Middle Ages when, everybody, look, the lights come back on again. So here's the central question that comes out of this. We know why the lights went out. The question is, how do the lights come back on again? And this would be true for any study of any culture. You might even ask this question about us today. Here's the question. Let's take it down. Are we today, is, I'm sorry, is our culture today a culture where the lights are on? Or is our culture one where the lights are off and we're still waiting for the lights to come back on again? What does this mean? I think there's a lot of people out right who've, who've lost their entire savings and their retirement plans and everything who might be thinking that we've entered into some kind of dark age here where the lights have gone off. But it's worth considering the question, okay? All right, into the, uh, into the uh, beginning of this medieval period, but actually that's not true because there's another minor uh, deviation that I'm gonna do here. Okay, what's about to happen right here is, and you don't, all, all you need to do is just watch. Don't take any notes on this. I just want you to see this. This is a brief demonstration of what you're going to be doing in December when you present your flags standing up here at this easel at the podium, okay? This is my family heraldry, and I'm gonna present it to you in graphic form here. You're presenting it to us in flag form, okay? So here's how it works for me. This is very brief. It's gonna be nowhere near as long as the presentation that you do, but here's how it worked out for me. Okay, so I started with a basic background. Now this actually is kind of purple, and Keynote made it that way, but it really should be deep blue. Why did I choose deep blue? 
because every single person in my family and my whole extended family and all their extended families, they all went to Punahou. And Punahou is the buff and blue. So I picked blue as the background because it really is the institution more than any other institution that defines our family. We all went there and there you go. I, I went to actually Ben Parker Elementary School in Kaneohe and then in the seventh grade I made the leap into Punahou and pretty much everybody did that. My father really believed that elementary school should be in public school and then you made the leap. Okay, So that's the blue background. So this is the story of the Rapoon family. And the Rapoon family is symbolized by this flag here, and we're on my father's side. This part of the discussion is my father's side. This is the flag of Latvia. He, his family comes from the capital of Latvia, which is Riga, and that's represented by the flag there, okay, on the, on the Rapoon side and my father's side. And in fact, the word Rapoon is actually a derivation of the word pheasant. Remember, I mentioned this to you before when I was talking about the pheasants that my father got when he was leaving Molokai. Pretty cosmic that he was given a couple of pheasants, and in fact, the Rapoon name actually means something along the lines of feathered bird like a pheasant, okay? So I'm representing that here um, as, a def as the definition of the term or the word uh, or the name Rapoon. Now on my father's maternal side is the Lewis family. This is the Welsh side. Okay? So this is German, Latvian, and then there's the Welsh side. And that's represented by the Welsh flag. Cymru U, which in Welsh means screw the English. Okay? I think I might have some English in there somewhere on my mother's side, but I don't care about that. I'm Welsh. And don't even cross me on that one. Okay? All right, so that's my father's side. Now, there's additional symbols that come with my father because my father, when he graduated from Punahou, went off to Harvard. And then my oldest uh, brother, Paul, and then my nieces and nephews and like six or seven of them, they all went there too. So there are these two educational institutions that really define my father's side of the family. And they're represented here by Harvard and then by the blue, which is Punahou, okay? All right, then we shift to my uh, mother's side. And my mother's maiden name was Engel. In German means angel. It's my middle name, okay? And so my mother was from Pennsylvania. She's Pennsylvanian Dutch, as they say. But as you can see right here, the only place that I've left room for my mother on the flag is right in the center. And there's a reason for that. My mother, bless her heart, had seven children. Anybody who has seven children should be blessed. She had one girl and then six boys. And I was four years, I'm the youngest, I was four years after the last boy that she had. So I was clearly a mistake and a big one, okay? She was like 42 or 43 when she had me. <clears throat> I, had no, I have no business being alive. I'm, I'm glad I am, but that's the way it worked out. So my mother spent a good deal of her time keeping me and my brothers from killing each other because that's what brothers do, we fight. And in this particular case, we were all wrestlers and football players, and wow, could we fight. We never, ever, ever fought anybody outside of the family. We weren't brawlers in the street. We were not Kimbo Slice. But when we fought each other, watch out. One time, my brother John and I were building a chicken coop together on my dad's property. We got into an argument about its design. He took a big, giant 4x4 post and tried to crush my skull with it. I dodged it, put my arm up, and actually blocked it. It almost 
broke my arm. What did I do? I picked up a pitchfork right there and I tried to stab him in the stomach. At which point my mother arrived and that's why she occupies the center right here. Okay. Now this is a covered bridge from Pennsylvania. But what is its symbolic meaning? My mother, her favorite song was a Simon and Garfunkel song called Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And that's what my mother was. She was the bridge over troubled waters. She not only kept us from killing each other, but she never told my father about any of these fights because he would have killed all of us <laughs> if he knew that we were fighting amongst each other and all that, right? So my mom occupies the central uh, uh, place on this particular shield. Okay. So it's the Rapoon Lewis Engel family. But if I were to put a motto on this flag, and I really had to think about this, um, here's what the motto would look like. It's actually the marketplace of ideas. And why is it the marketplace of ideas? Because my father and my mother insisted that every night all nine of us sit at the dinner table and eat together. And that was still true when the rest of my brothers had gone off to college. And even when I was the last one left in the house, it was my mom and my father and I eating dinner together. We were never, ever let off the hook on that one. You could never go and eat your dinner in your room. You could never even eat anywhere else. The family always ate together. And when the family ate together, we argued together. It was the marketplace of ideas. And the really annoying thing about that is that my father was always right, even when he was wrong. So we would argue, 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 and my father, blah, 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 blah. And he was clearly wrong in the argument. And then he'd pick up his coffee cup and go, well, I'm right. And then he'd go off and do his work. <laughs> and we would sit there and go, no, you're not right. But we couldn't say that. It's a very annoying thing. But the whole notion of being able to defend your ideas in a marketplace is really what the family was all about. Okay? Demonstration of my heraldry. Got the idea? Excellent. Okay. That's what we will be hoping that you will do um, come the end of the term. Okay. So now into the main part of this medieval period. Right? So we start off with a very important figure. And there's only a couple of them that we're going to want to be accountable for as we go through. The first one is this figure, Charlemagne, who is the first emperor to emerge out of the Dark Ages, who perhaps represents the lights coming back on again. He looks and sounds and feels like a Roman emperor, albeit a good one. And it's really the first time, 742 to 814, 400 years after the fall of Rome, that we start to see the emergence of a central figure who might be able to kind of pull uh, the chaos back together again and impose order. Okay, So he's a powerful leader. He's a strong Christian. He creates this thing called the Carolingian uh, Empire. He's even crowned by the Christian Pope in Rome as the Holy Roman Emperor in the year 800. And his worldly authority is blessed by the church authority. So let's look at the image right here. What's in his right hand? A sword representing what? His earthly authority. And this is what? A cross. And it represents what authority? His religious authority. So here you have a figure who's carrying both worldly authority and religious authority. Now, this is an idea that's a little bit foreign to us because you know what we do in our culture, right? We separate our church and our state. So the question is, why have we separated our church and our state? 
you guys assume that and you get crazy when you see church and state meshing together. When you see our president, George Bush, professing his faith in Christianity openly and even suggesting that some of his decisions are based on his faith, people get crazy and they say, no, 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 we can't have mixing of church and state. Why? What's wrong, here's the question, what's wrong with the mixing of church and state? Why not invest religious authority in the hands of the person who's also your civil authority? And Charlemagne allows us to raise some of these questions because he was both, and that he achieved a fair amount of unity on both the religious side and on the secular or the worldly side, okay? He's a, he's a really critical figure. Not only that, he was huge, like 6'6", six, six, apparently, enormous, uh, loved reading, loved literature, uh, really developed the language in Europe and all that. He's really a pivotal figure and he's worth paying some attention to. Oops, let me go back, back. Okay, so his kingdom is the Frankish kingdom. And I, I put this up here only to make one quick comment. Any of you French? Ah, oh, you guys, you have French. You guys, you French, you're so full of yourselves that you think, you think that the French have always been French. Oh, the French, we've always existed. Since, since time began, since cave drawings, we have been French, baloney. You have not. As a matter of fact, the Frankish kingdom, which is Charlemagne's kingdom, is really occupied by Germanic people, Saxons. The Germanic kingdoms and all of the barbarian invasions that come in on the top of Rome, these are mostly Germanic people who come and settle in this area. Now, Frankish, sound familiar, would become France. Frankish kingdom later becomes France. It goes from Gaul to the Frankish kingdom to France. So the truth is, you French have no credible, no credible way of saying that you've always been French. In fact, you're probably more German than you are French. Ha! There you go. So stop being so full of yourselves and your, and your croissant and baguette and, and your theater and all of that kind of stuff. You guys have really only been around for a very short period of time, and you should get over this whole thing about you think you've been there forever, okay? Anyway, that's why I bring that up, because you're like, oh, Frankish kingdom, oh, that's so boring, you know? Well, no, it isn't actually. And the Frankish kingdom becomes French and kicks off this whole identity thing where the French people believe themselves to be distinctly separate from the Germans. But in fact, they really come from the same stock and they pretty much should get along a little better than they normally do, you know, the whole World War I, World War II thing. What's up with that, okay? All right. Okay, so mm, that's the Frankish kingdom, and we move forward. All right, now, the lights, the lights have come back on a little bit with Charlemagne. There's literature, there's learning, there's unity, there's some order, there's law, and then the Vikings arrive. And the Vikings arrived possibly for weather-related reasons because there was a tremendous warming of Europe during this time. You can actually track the temperatures of medieval Europe during this time. And in the thaw, the Vikings decided it was time to come south and start looking for things, as in land, farms, and women. It's getting a little crowded up there in Scandinavia. Not too many women around to marry. I'm going to go off down south and see if I can find somebody down there. Okay? I'm not actually exaggerating. There are many reasons why the Vikings came down. 
But the general idea that we get about the Vikings is, oh, raping and pillaging, horrible death and destruction and all of that, when in truth, these were mostly Scandinavian farmers who were working their way down into Europe looking for new land to settle. And yes, the people who came ahead of them, the Viking warriors, did wreak havoc on Europe. But I think that that picture is not quite as accurate as it should be. But nevertheless, it has been argued that when the Vikings arrived, the lights went back out again. Okay? And they went back out especially when Charlemagne dies and the Viking incursions into Europe, which you can see here which you can see here on this map. Okay, so you see the Vikings coming all the way down into Europe. And this map is really kind of cool, and I just point this out to you. Imagine right here, you have large Nordic man dressed in very warm clothing, right? Lots of fur skins and animal skins, you know, and all that. And look at where he's arriving in the Mediterranean. He's arriving essentially in the warm, sunny, 90-degree Mediterranean on the beaches of France and probably going, Wow, where have you been all my life, right? Beautiful, as compared to the frozen north and all that, which explains why the Vikings didn't just disappear and go back up again, and why the people of France and the people of Spain and the people of Germany and the people of England all, to a certain extent, can claim some Nordic heritage because they married into the people that they had first terrorized and eventually settled down, and you get a lot of mixing. So this whole business of people being distinctly German or distinctly French or distinctly English is really pretty much hooey-bluey. It's just indefensible that people say that. It raises a question of why they say that. Okay. All right. So we have the central concept now that we've been working on. Uh, who was it? I made you. You, Brittany, got down on one knee and you swore an oath of loyalty to me. And in that, you were engaging in this concept of feudalism, which is a political and economic and social system in which I asked you for loyalty and in exchange gave you a portion of my lands. We set up a relationship and this relationship allowed for some measure of order in a society that had gotten very chaotic and very difficult to live in in the fall of Rome and the loss of Roman law and order. Okay? And it clearly defined the participants. Everybody had their place as opposed to us today in which our places are very fluid and can often change um, from year to year. Okay? Now, part of that was bleeding off the screen. Okay, so as distinct from feudalism, and this is a very important point, okay? You need to actually note this down. Note to self in your notes. Know the difference between the concept of feudalism and the system that we call the manor economy. People tend to fuse them together, but they are not to be fused together. Okay? So the system of feudalism is a system of loyalty relationships between you and me, you being my vassal, me being your lord. The manor economy is the economic system that implants itself on Europe in the, after the fall of Rome and becomes the dominant economic system. And as you can see here in this image, you see the manor system at work and what are people doing? Working. And what kind of work are they doing? Agricultural work. Okay? So the 95% of the population is doing labor and most of that percent of that 95% is doing agricultural work as Europeans struggle to feed themselves. Okay? Now, 
at the same time that we have the manor economy, we do have a hierarchy which is, resembles feudalism but doesn't distinctly define itself based on those loyalty relationships. So the lord of the manor, who is really a vassal to the king, and then the knight or lesser lord, who has his loyalty uh, placed with his lord, okay? and then the craftsman, and then the serf at the very bottom. Okay? So you have this distinct hierarchy, and the system that they were working in was called the manor economy, and that's how it worked. Okay, so here's the feudal power relationship. And by the way, this slide is different from what you've got. You've got a triangle, see it? Okay, so I changed this slide so you can make note of this. Here's the feudal power relationship, and it's signified by a triangle. I've, I've purposefully using, I am purposefully using a triangle, a geometric shape, in order to show you what a power relationship looks like. And what it suggests is that all the people down here have no power, and that all the power that exists is really concentrated at the very top. That's why I'm using this geometric triangle. Okay? And that's represented by the size of these individual labels. The king being the most powerful, the lords who are loyal to the king in that vassalage feudal system, who are powerful but not as powerful as the king, and then the knights who are below that, the knight in shining armor uh, represented uh, over here by my knight in shining armor. And no, he wasn't a Happy Meal. He was a very expensive museum piece that I had to get. Okay, and then at the very bottom, the 95% of the population, which is the agricultural worker known as the serf, okay? Appointed to work the land, okay? That's the power relationship right there. And this image up here, again, is a reinforcement of what Brittany and I did the other day in that giving of homage to the Lord, okay? All right, so out of this comes a really pivotal figure for us in popular culture, for us today, which is the knight. I know that all of you hope someday that a knight in shining armor will arrive in your life. And there, oh, it, it, you're absolutely hoping, I know you do. Okay, and, and when that person arrives, that poor guy, when he arrives, oh my God, the expectations that are gonna be laid on his shoulders about how, how he acts, how he behaves, how he thinks. And in fact, you are actually going to require that he act like a knight in shining armor. Small stuff like, open the door for me. Why should I open the door for you? Why don't you open the door for me? But that's the way this thing has been set up. You're going to want him to be fair. You're going to want him to be just. You're going to want him to be brave. You're going to want him to throw his coat down on a puddle so that you can step over it. There are all these things that you're going to want him to do. And how do you know that you want him to do those things? Because the knight is one of the pivotal figures in literature and in film. Lord of the Rings, uh, all of the stories of King Arthur that you would see on film, Sean Connery, all of that. I mean, Sean Connery is the knight. He is the knight. He's played it in so many different times and all of that. So this figure is really key to us because it really reflects something about us, this notion of chivalry, uh, which isn't just about opening doors. It's actually about uh, fair play. And that'll come up later when we get a chance to see um, a clip about um, the medieval tournament. 
Okay, so elite military soldiers, usually from the noble classes, and you had various stages that you would go through. You'd start out as the guy cleaning the stables, and then you would work your way up to being a page, uh, sort of a, a, a gopher person, go for this, go for that. And then eventually you might work your way up to squire, so you're actually the knight's assistant. And then eventually you might become a knight yourself if you could just let the cards or make the cards play out the way that you really hoped that they would. Okay. Mark Twain actually made a very funny remark in a book called uh, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court when he meets a little boy walking along the road and he, he says to the boy, who are you? And the boy says, I'm a page. And he goes, oh, go on, you're just a paragraph. <laughs> ha! Okay. All right. Okay, so do we have modern knights? Yes, as a matter of fact, we do. And this is going to briefly take you, if this works correctly, to a YouTube clip. Watch this. Okay, so we do have our modern knights, and uh, we pay attention to them. Okay, off we go. All right, now the knight, of course, is connected directly to the castle, and we saw that film yesterday with David McCauley, and you got everything that you needed to know about the castle and more. Right, so it's, it's really the center of noble life, and its purposes, intimidation, military defense, and as a residence for the nobility. And for a time, after the fall of Rome, the castle becomes the central sort of iconic uh, uh, image, like the Parthenon um, or like the Forum in Rome. It becomes the iconic image of Europe. When people think of medieval Europe, what pops into their mind are these castles. Okay? All right. Let's keep going. All right. So then we get to the medieval tournament and hopefully if we time this thing right, not sure how it'll work out today, um, I actually will have a clip to show you at the end um, of the medieval tournament. Um, the medieval tournament is really critical to the story of the knight because in the beginning as the knights begin to come into culture, what is the primary thing that they really want to do? Is it agriculture? No. What the knights really want to do is to fight with one another, to practice their skills. Why do people box? Why do people go into MMA? Why do people play volleyball? Why do people play football? Mm, these are men, most of the time, who are looking to engage in that competitive spirit in one-on-one -on -one competition with people. But in the beginning of the Middle Ages, in the medieval period, these knights who are clashing with each other are actually killing each other at an astonishing rate. I mean, they're very dangerous killing machines up there on their horses. So over time, and actually partly because of the intervention of the church, the tournament comes about. And the tournament attempts to restore order and impose order on the knights themselves. So it gives them a place where they can go, where they can practice their skills without killing anybody. And over time, it becomes the great festival of the Middle Ages is this night tournament or the tournament where the knights would practice. Okay? All right. So that's a quick look at the medieval tournament. And it served its purpose, which is to begin to in, in, uh, restore order or install order or impose order on a society that had gotten very chaotic um, in the fall of Rome. Okay. All right. Now, we shift over from the clerical, I mean, from the secular side, which is the, the worldly side, to the religious side. And as it turns out, the same geometric figure can be used to describe 
the Catholic Church's hierarchy and the power relationships within the Catholic Church. Okay, so just basic religious understanding. I'm not sure what your level of religious understanding is, but the first Christian church to emerge after the death of Christ and as Christianity begins to emerge, the first Christian church is called the Catholic Church, the Holy Apostolic Catholic Church. Okay, so very basic terms. There are the 12 disciples of Christ. What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower. And there are 12 of them, okay? But what is an apostle? An apostle is someone who is charged to go out and bring the message of whatever that person's religion or organization is, to bring that to other people. So the disciples become apostles, but there are many other apostles besides the disciples. Make sense? Okay. So for example, Mary Magdalene, who is in biblical lore the uh, prostitute who Jesus saves from being stoned and then becomes a part of his group. She's not a disciple in the strict sense of the word, but she becomes an apostle of Christ after he dies and goes off to France, actually, in the south of France, and begins to preach the gospel of Christianity and the gospel of Christ. And so she has not one role, but the other, okay? So we get the holy Catholic apostolic, bring the message to the whole world, church. And it has a particular hierarchy to it. At the top is the Pope, known as Papa, the Father. He is literally Christ's representative on earth. And he exists in his little city-state in Italy, in Rome, called the Vatican, which is itself a separate country in the middle of Rome, completely separate country. And he is the head of the entire Catholic Church. Below him are cardinals who will elect the next pope if one dies. And in fact, what, three years ago in European, right in the middle of this section, the current pope died, which gave us a great moment to, I mean, that sounds kind of mean, but it was a great moment to actually look at all the pageantry that went into the funeral of Pope John Paul II, and then the election a short time later of Pope Benedict, who's the current pope. Pope John Paul was a Polish pope, and Pope Benedict is a German pope. So they come from all over the Catholic world. And the election of Benedict was particularly interesting because there are many people who really wanted the pope to come from Africa or from South America. So we were on the verge of possibly getting our first black pope there. It was very close, actually. The vote was apparently very close. That would have been unusual for the world, would it not? I mean, almost within three years of each other, the president of the United States and the head of the entire Catholic Church I mean, this is, uh, these are interesting times that you're living in, okay? So the, the cardinals elect the pope. The, uh, uh, well, let's go actually go from the opposite direction. So here we have the common man in the Catholic Church. And the common man is taken care of by the priest. And the priest, if he rises up, can become a bishop. And a bishop is a person who's in charge of a particular area of the Catholic Church, geographic area. And if you rise up in the world, you can become an archbishop, arching over other bishops. And then eventually you can become a cardinal, which is a very distinct group of people at the very top. And then ultimately, if your cards are just lined up right, you might end up becoming elected as the next pope. Okay? And by the way, nowhere in this hierarchy are women permitted. Nowhere. Women can't be priests, women can't be bishops, they can't be archbishops, cardinals, or popes. Yeah. Okay? 
That's the way the Catholic Church began, and it's a really good question. Let's put it down. Why are women excluded from the power relationships within the Catholic Church? What function does that serve? Okay, so we have this geometric shape that suggests that power radiates up towards the top to a very distinct figure at the very top. And here you see the current pope. Oh, I'm sorry. So church power. So the, 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 each individual bishop then has a geographic area that he's in charge of, and that area is called the diocese. Not so important to remember this, but just as you become familiar with it, okay? So there is the diocese of Honolulu, and you guys know the Catholic church down here in Waikiki with the green roof? Yeah. Okay, that's our main Catholic church here, and that, that's where the diocese of Honolulu is headquartered, and our Bishop Silva, who's the first bishop to actually come from Hawaii, is the current bishop of Honolulu, and he's in charge of this geographic area known as Hawaii. There's the Diocese of Hilo, there's the Diocese of Paris, there's the Diocese of Manila, which is a very Catholic culture, by the way, the Filipinos. There is the Diocese of Chicago, there's the Diocese of Milan, there's all of these dioceses, okay? So these dioceses are individual geographic units. The bishop is in charge, and underneath all the bishops are the priests that occupy their individual little Catholic parishes here and there. Anybody here Catholic? Ah, what is your parish? Where do you go to church? Um, St. Peter, Peter and Paul, and that is where? Ah, yes, yes, I know where that is. Okay, so your parish is St. Peter and Paul, and you have your priest and your various hierarchy there. What is yours, Brooke? Do you go to Mass? You don't go to Mass anymore. You used to. Where did you guys go? I used to go to school at Holy Trinity. Yes. Okay. And so a very Catholic institution, and that's how you were raised. Okay. So here's our current Pope. And notice how he's dressed in all the finements of the, of the Catholic tradition there. And essentially he's out on the balcony. And who is he upraising his hands to? He is the shepherd. He is the shepherd of the flock. So really who he's raising his hands up to is the flock. And the flock are the sheep. Okay, so here's a diagram of how it looks. Here's the Pope. And here are all the individual dioceses that you see here with the individual units of power clustered around them. And every, all that power radiates to the center. And these individual red units are those parishes like St. Peter and Paul or Holy Trinity that exist as part of this entire diagram of the Catholic Church. Now, I put this image here only to raise the question, and here's the question. What does it mean when a religious institution views its people as the flock? And does it mean anything that we tend to associate flock with sheep? So for some people, for the non-believers, they might think, well, what do sheep do? They cluster together. Why? Why do sheep cluster together? Safety in numbers. Safety in numbers, exactly. And they're constantly afraid of the winds that are blowing around them uh, on the outside and, and fearful of who? The wolf. 
And so who does the wolf represent in this whole process here? The devil, okay? And so Satan is always at work in the world. And so the flock needs its shepherds, and the chief shepherd is the pope. And you can work with that idea and think about what that means, okay? Now, the devil obviously represents not only Satan, but bad Catholic thinking. Like, for example, Catholics are charged not to use birth control. But there are many Catholics out there who are simply ignoring that. Does that rise to the level of truly bad Catholic thinking where you might actually be cast out of the church, excommunicated? Mm, probably not. But if you don't believe in Christ as the Son of God, that might rise to the level of bad Catholic thinking enough to the point where the church would consider casting you out through excommunication. Okay? All right. So over the course of the Middle Ages, the church begins to expand its power. And you know what happens with power, right? Power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And there's a whole genre of literature and study that you could get into that would be just focused on what happened to the church when it became powerful, how it became corrupt. There are things that I could tell you about the church that I actually can't repeat in this classroom. Things that happened that are astonishing in their depravity, in their cruelty, in their perverseness, that happened as a result of the Catholic Church becoming quite powerful. And, and I'm talking about stuff that happened all the way up at the top, at the level of the popes. Um, you're going to get something later when you come back to me in term four um, in the Reformation when there's attack against the Catholic Church that there was one pope who was particularly fond of having little boys jumping out of large cakes, if you get my drift on that, right? You get that kind of corruption and that kind of behavior. But nevertheless, the church is really expanding its power, and it's beginning to clash against the worldly powers, the monarchs. And this is the great narrative that's beginning to unfold, is that clash between two great powers, the church and the state which we have separated and kept away from each other. But whenever they creep closer together, we see that clash happening again and again, okay? All right, so this is actually the midway point between where we are in this chapter and where we go in the next chapter, which is the High Middle Ages. And we move on to Van Doren's um, chapter called The Great Experiment. And that's after you, get, after you finish reading Light in the Dark Ages, okay? And he has some very basic questions that he's asking. How do I survive? Who are my enemies? What does God expect of me? And perhaps most interesting, can God be proven? Which is a really central question for thoughtful people in this time period who were feeling their spirituality, but were thinking reasonable people who thought it might be possible to prove the existence of God. And it's worth our stopping for a moment and kind of paying attention to the fact that these people were asking these questions about the actual existence of God. Here you guys are at this Renaissance, humanistic, ancient Greek, classical institution here. You come here, in some cases, specifically because you don't have to go to chapel, like the girls at Sacred Hearts and Priory uh, and other religious schools do. You don't, I mean, you, you know that Punahou students still have to go to chapel every week. That's part of their Protestant tradition. And yet this school was founded precisely so that students wouldn't have to go through a religious education. So here you are in this institution, which is so heavily weighted in the direction of science and math and all that. 
And the question that is sitting out there is, where is my level of spirituality and what role does La Pietra play in that? So obviously if Mrs. Hugo said tomorrow we're going to start having prayer sessions, mandatory, in the courtyard, there would be no small measure of trouble over something like that. Okay? All right. So, out of the religious tradition, we get a couple of very interesting themes that come out of this. First of all is the monastic tradition. There were some Christians early on who felt <clears throat> that the only way to live a truly Christian life was to become poor, to divest yourself of all of your worldly possessions. So Victoria, you are to give away your computer, please, and to give away everything that you have, and to go out upon the street and beg for your daily bread. And only in that way can you truly live a Christian existence, because Christ was poor, and he preached that a rich man, I'm only paraphrasing here, has an easier chance of getting into heaven than a, than a camel has a chance of passing through the eye of a needle. So, Victoria, give up your computer, because when you die, you can't take it with you. Might as well give it up now and begin to get closer to this ultimate spirituality which doesn't really allow any materialism of any kind. So out of this comes the monks who separate themselves from society and their possessions to live a poor life, to pray, to be celibate, to, to not be married, to have no relationships with anybody else, to have no family other than their fellow monks, and to, to come closer to God. And so here's your question then. To what extent would I be willing to become a monk in order to get closer to God? Maybe the other question would be, why do people still live in monasteries in this modern day and age? So we're kind of thinking around the edges of this business of, uh, of materialism and how it tends to corrupt us away from spirituality. Okay? And out of that comes some very interesting things that happen. First of all, as we've already noted before, the monks, because they have time on their hands, become the kinkos of Europe. They're the ones that everybody turns to because they were literate and because they had great penmanship to copy the manuscripts that still existed from Greece and Rome. So they went into this process of not only copying those classical manuscripts, but they also began to copy versions of the Bible that were starting to show up. And you're going to get a, a podcast about how the Bible uh, over time has changed as a result of mistakes that were made by the monks as they were doing these copies. And also, they became very expert artists in the, creating these illuminated manuscripts some of which were maybe only that big, some of which were giant. And uh, hopefully you'll get to see some of those as you go um, into the museums of the United States and Europe as you travel. Okay? All right. And the only really important order of monks that I'm going to pause on are the Franciscans, because I think that they're the ones that we know the best. Okay? Everybody knows St. Francis of Assisi. He's the guy who loved birds. So we all sort of tap into that idea of being St. Francis. Oh, she's such a St. Francis. 
And we have the, those girls up there in Manoa who go to St. Francis up there, the very Catholic school up there. Well, it's really more than just the stereotype of loving birds. It was really about being close to nature and about living a poor and austere life, a life that would get you closer to God. So really what they're working on here is the idea that everything that you've got in front of you, all this stuff, is all a distraction from your spiritual life. And yet, you're not willing to give up any of it. Very little of it, if none of it. You really aren't. Your religion today, if you are a religious person and you're, and you're going to a religious institution, is probably not asking you to give up anything. Right, Victoria? You're not being asked to give up your possessions. Your priest is not up there sermonizing that you should give up your computer. However, he is asking you to give a certain portion of your income, your tithe, when the hat goes around, in order to build Mother Church, right? So I wonder who's asking you to give up anything these days? Nobody. Is anybody asking you to give anything up? No. So here's the question. What kind of culture comes when we ask no one to give up anything? Would we be a better culture, looking back to the early Catholic monks, if we chose to give up some things? Is there value in giving something up? Tell you for a fact, if I, for me to give away my laptop, that'd be a big moment for me. There'd have to be something really seriously in it for me. Like, I don't know, eternal life? Right? Get where I'm going with that? Okay. All right, that's the Franciscans. Now, another thing that comes out of this emerging Catholic tradition, as I said before, is bad thinking. Okay? You don't believe in the divinity of Christ. I cast you out of the church. That's if I know that she doesn't believe in the divinity of Christ. But if she won't confess, I have to get her to confess. Ergo, the development of the Inquisition, which the church uses as a tool to root out bad religious Catholic thinking. So, won't confess? Let's put you on the rack. If you confess, yes, I don't believe, then we have extracted a truth from you, haven't we? <laughs> haven't we? You're not sure, because you're not sure what you would say when you're under torture. Okay? So, the Inquisition is really this really infamous institution that comes out of this process here of trying to keep the church pure and it becomes a part of much literature and movies and all of that and as of this morning it became a blog topic for us. There's like an eight-minute YouTube film uh, that you'll be able to go through that shows all of the many ways that the Inquisition tortured people. It's a little graphic so viewer discretion advise. But there are some questions associated with whether or not the church should formally apologize for the Inquisition and for the torture that was, uh, that was visited on the people of the Middle Ages and even as late as you know, modern Europe, or whether it's too late for apologies. Okay? All right, that's the Inquisition. Okay, so then we come down to this last part of the, of, of, uh, the Christian theme, and we get the development first of the Romanesque church, which is Romanesque because it looks like the Romans looked. Here, everybody look. Here's Titus. Here's the Romanesque church. What does he look like? Short, squat, 
fat with really thick sides. Okay, that's the Romanesque church. Short, squat, really thick walls, no windows. Looks like the Romans. Okay, that's the early Roman church. But eventually, over time, we would get the development of the Gothic church. This is Notre Dame. The only Disney film that I will endorse, because the rest of them are all horrible rubbish okay, in terms of history. History, I'm not, okay. But The Hunchback of Notre Dame is actually a truly accurate historical film. I'll endorse that one. So this is Notre Dame, and we're actually going to see a whole film on the development of the Gothic cathedral and how they were built and how they were developed. So I'm not going to dwell here, except to take you through a series of images of um, Gothic cathedrals that I'm familiar with. This is the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. It's the third largest Gothic cathedral in the world. It was finished in 1930. It took 70 years to build. And it's absolutely gorgeous. And if you go with me on close-up in the spring of 2010, it's one of the places that we'll definitely visit. And it's where all our presidents are memorialized when they die. Uh, it's where the great memorial after 9-11 was held. This is a side view of our Gothic cathedral, sticking up on the top of a hill above Washington, D.C., uh, like a great pinnacle up there. Okay, another side view. Okay, this is Central Union Church, right over there by Punahou. It's where Punahou has their baccalaureate, where all their graduates all gather together for a religious service before they go off to make tons of money and move all that money back to Punahou. Hate them. Uh, but, but nevertheless, they have to have this little religious ceremony before they graduate so that God will bless them as they soak up all the money and suck it into Punahou. But be that as it may. Okay, so this has elements of both the Romanesque, short, thick, and squat, and the Gothic, which is reaching up to the heavens, thin, light, glass, fragile, beautiful, okay, Central Union. Here's our St. Andrew's, or St. Augustine's Cathedral, which is down here in Waikiki. This is the head of the Catholic Church. And I've always wondered why they, the Catholic Church, allowed the ABC stores to build this little joint in the front of them, because this is actually their front door right there. Isn't that a tragedy? The front door could be looking out onto Waikiki. Oh, you know, God's sunsets. No, instead we get the ABC store. I always wondered about that. There must have been a lot of money in it for them. Uh, this is Sacred Hearts, and this is very Romanesque in the sense of the short and squat and the thick, and yet it has the Gothic window, which is the pointed arch rather than the rounded arch, and you'll learn more about that later. This is St. Andrew's Cathedral, where Priory is, which is actually truly a beautiful little cathedral. Anybody been in it? Yes, you've been inside, and you see how much, huh? You used to go there. Wow, you're one of them. You're a survivor. Okay, and so here's St. Andrew's Cathedral, and you can see it's very definitely Gothic, and here's the stained glass on the inside. How often did you guys go to chapel? Once a week, you guys went to chapel, yeah. But how come, like, you know, like, there's that term, like, gothic, like, for how people dress and stuff? Like, yeah. why? No relation. Absolutely no relation. I don't know how the, the goth concept came to be, but it's definitely not connected to the notion of gothic in terms of cathedral. This is Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, and that's me. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so you can definitely see the Gothic thing happening here, right? Tall spires, rose window, pointed arches, beautiful uh, front west door, 
Um, this is absolutely a beautiful cathedral, Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. You've been there? Up on the top of Russian Hill. What a place. Okay, now we pause for just a moment to um, note that in the middle of the medieval period, after 600 AD, out of the East comes Islam. And again, Islam is the Prophet Muhammad receiving the word of Allah, and Allah is the one true God, the same true God of Christians and of Jews. And Muhammad receives this word, which is then transmitted into the Quran. And over time, if you were ever to watch an animation of this, Islam makes its way almost all the way up into France. It actually goes all the way across into North Africa, up through Spain, conquers most of Spain, becomes the dominant religion of Spain, and about halfway up into France before Charlemagne pushes them back and deeply influences Christian Spain. And you'll see that in another film that we're going to watch a little bit later on. So this is Mecca, and this is the Hajj, where millions of people go every year to celebrate Islam. And um, this is the great mosque of Cordoba in Spain. And so you'll hear one argument that while Europeans were living in filth after the fall of Rome, barely able to eke out a living, uh, mostly killing each other, living a brutish life, Islam was creating some of the most astonishing buildings in the whole world. And they, in fact, were tapping into ancient Greek and Roman texts about medicine and astronomy and everything else. And that that information made its way into Europe and may have caused the lights to come back on. So the notion of Europeans sort of lifting themselves up and becoming a great culture is a bit of a myth, considering how connected we are to Islam in that way. Okay. All right, then we're almost at the end here. Then we get the Crusades. And the Crusades, they, they get up. They, there's all these guys who have nothing better to do. They're knights, but they're farmers, and there's no chance to fight or anything. And all of a sudden, you know, Islam takes over Jerusalem, the central Christian city. And what do they do? They get up and they rush off to go slaughter the infidel and kill a few Jews along the way. And I'll tell you a really quick story about that. When I was teaching at Punahou Medieval Studies, I had one group one year. It was eight girls and eight boys. It just turned out this way. They were in the classroom. So I came to the classroom on the day that we were going to deal with the Crusades, and I stuck my head in the door like this, and I shouted, hey, I'm going on a crusade. And then I ducked back out and shut the door. Guess who followed me out the door? The boys. Eight boys. Guess who stayed inside? The eight girls. <laughs> I walked out halfway out the field. The boys were all following after me like this. Is that not stereotypical or what? I said, you guys sit down right here in the grass. I'll be back. And I went back inside the classroom and I said, ladies, look at what happened here. The civilizing influence stayed back in Europe and the idiots who want to kill and maim everybody just rushed off to do just that. So pay attention if any of these guys are going to be your boyfriends or whatever, you know? That's the thing. And, and I don't think that I could have made that lesson work any better. It was just happenstance that the eight boys jumped out, but I probably could have predicted that that was going to happen. Okay? So the Crusaders, that's a really simple way of saying that this is really what happened in the Crusades. It was, it was, it was religious fervor and excitement, and yet these guys who went off were definitely knights in armor who were really relegated to doing a lot of agriculture and just didn't have enough perhaps outlet for their aggressions. And I know that sounds simple and trite, but there may be something historically to that. Okay. 
So we get a series of crusades, and of course they're going to convert the non-believers or to kill the infidel, Islam, the Muslim, the hated Muslim. And of course Jews who were bad Christian thinkers, by the way, because the Messiah hasn't arrived yet, so we'll take care of them along the way. It's a fairly ugly story, the Crusades. It goes on for many, many years, and there are many Crusades, five, I believe, and in the end, no territory is gained or lost, much death and destruction. Perhaps the only positive result of the Crusades, which you'll read about in both Van Doren and Ellison Essler and Beers, is that we would come in contact, we Westerners would come in contact with Islam, where they were doing things like eating with knives and forks, where we were still eating with our fingers, or they were eating things like peaches, when we were still eating small bits of unleavened and dusty bread and things like that, right? Or, or we came in contact with astronomy, where we were still believing in astrology and that sort of thing. Okay, so this is Pope Urban, you'll get to that later, who's making his call for the crusade in 1095. And he said, God wills it. And all of these guys rushed out of the classroom and went off on the crusades. But they did not go any short distance, by the way. Okay. So in the beginning, mostly French knights, they captured Jerusalem. It was taken back, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, there's a film out called, uh, what is it called? With Orlando Bloom, just a couple of years ago, uh, where he's a crusader. I'm not remembering, legend uh, something. Anyway, that's a film about the crusades and I'll endorse that one quite accurate as a historical film. And he's pretty good in it. I don't think much of him as an actor, but he was pretty good in that one. Okay. Sorry to offend anybody. Okay, <laughs> years of fruitless fighting. Here's the distance that they traveled, watch, right here. Okay, so the knights of medieval Europe who rush off to the Holy Land, that's no small distance. That's a couple thousand miles on foot or by horseback. To do what? To free the Holy Land, Jerusalem, the birthplace or the development birthplace of Christianity from the hated infidel from Islam, from the Muslim, which is in this lower area of the Mediterranean here, okay, Jerusalem. So we pay attention to the distance that they travel and the reasons for why they went. Okay, we also see the development in the later Middle Ages of universities, which were connected to the church originally to train people to become members of the church. But you know what happens at universities, right? What happens at universities? Mostly. What's the primary thing going on at universities? And I don't mean drinking. Here. What's supposed to be going on at universities? Learning. learning. Okay. And when you learn, you're thinking, right? You learn by thinking. And what happens when you think? You come to really astonishing things like, well, the church says that the sun is rotating around the earth, which you could not prove otherwise if you went to the top of Diamond Head and watched the sunrise and then the sunset, you could not prove to me that the sun does not rotate around the earth. You only know that because you've been told that, right? You couldn't actually prove it. But if in the Middle Ages, you got to thinking about it and I thought, hmm, actually it appears that the data suggests that the earth is revolving around the sun, then the church would say, I cast you out because that's bad church thinking. So in a way, these universities become the very infection which would ultimately bring down the power of the church because people really began to think about things. And Van Doren covers that. 
We get the development of new nations, very powerful, like France and England. So we get these new nations emerging, which are going to be new sources of conflict as we go. And then we come down to the very end, and we re return back to this Roman notion. How are we doing on time here? We're doing okay. We come back to this Roman notion of law. So in this very lawless period of the Middle Ages, we end up with this document called Magna Carta, which is where the nobility sits down. You guys are all my nobility, and I have been running all over you, taking your lands when I feel like it, making laws whenever I feel like it. And you guys all get together, and you make me sign a document. Here's a document right here. Here's the document, the Magna Carta. And you sit me down, and what does Magna Carta say? You shall not run over us anytime you want anymore. You are now bound by a set of rules. And if you don't sign this, we won't be loyal to you as our king anymore. And so what do I do? I sign it. And when I sign it, what do I give away? Power. Power. How much? A little bit. That's the question. A little bit in the beginning. But slowly over time, we're going to ultimately end up in 2008 here, in which we have no central authority who commands absolute power anymore. We have checks and balances and bodies that uh, balance each other in terms of power. Okay? And that in, would happen in England in terms of the development of parliament, which would begin to work with the king on a set of rules that everybody would have to live by in terms of power. I'm going to show a clip to you later about parliament. Okay, so the late Middle Ages, we come down to the end, 1300 to 1500, and this is where we're going to pick up after in the next chapter, in chapter 9, which was a time of, you know, intense warfare and intense death and destruction. The Black Death, which we're going to study in detail, and we're going to ask who's responsible for it, killed 25 to 40 million Europeans in the space of three years. An astonishing number of people died in a very short amount of time. And the kill rate of the Black Death, the bubonic plague, is not even as high as the bird flu, which is sitting out there in China right now, waiting to come to Hawaii. That kill rate is 53%. One out of every two people will die in this culture if the bird flu ever makes the leap from bird to animal to, I mean, bird to human to human to human. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna really look at that towards the end of the term. Yeah. Indeed, there are lots of epidemic diseases out there, which are killer in that way, and that's our theme as we're going to be looking at that. Okay, so here's the plague, major killer. We get the Hundred Years' War, in which nations begin to clash with each other over power, and that story is going to unfold all the way through the rest of European history. And you're going to get uh, the details of that when you do your reading. The French and the English begin to uh, compete for territory and for power. And out of that comes some pretty interesting stuff, including Shakespeare, who would chronicle that in Henry V, one of his great plays, The Struggle for Power Between the French and the English. We also get the story of Joan of Arc, who is this woman, uh, this peasant woman who hears voices and is told as a French peasant woman that she will become the leader of the French army in its fight against the English and that she will defeat the English. And in fact, she does, played by Kira Knightley recently in a film about three years ago called Joan, which I'll also endorse that too. It's actually a pretty good portrayal 
of the life of Joan of Arc, but eventually she would be captured by the English and burned as a bad Christian thinker. Okay, and then we come down to the last part here, which is the legacy of the medieval era. It's a transitional period between the fall of Rome and where we're going to pick up in term four, which is the Renaissance. It's also a time when these new kingdoms evolve, and it's also a time when the church really becomes a very dominant force in Europe and eventually becomes the largest religious institution on the planet, but which ultimately loses ground to free-thinking people who began to challenge its authority. Okay? And that, I believe, is that. Oh, yes, modern institutions, the university, and so on and so forth. Okay, so we come back to the end. Same questions that we started with. Was the life of labor miserable or reasonable? What was on the hearts and minds of medieval Europeans? And then later, the second symposium in this part is going to be who should be held accountable for the death of two-thirds of Europe's population over the course of three years.